was like, we saw the opportunity. This was an off-market deal. We immediately jumped on it, put an LOI in, and rushed to get an escrow before someone else figured out what I what I had figured out. I didn't want the world to know about it. So uh, when I think really what, what what the biggest thing that kind of separates a lot of people that are successful and do more deals versus the people that are less successful and do less deals are the ability to spot and act upon opportunity. So when there's opportunity in front of you, you need to seize it. You know, you need to do what you need to do. You need to get the information. You need to be, you know, diligent in the way you underwrite it. But at the same time, you can't overthink it and uh, and delay. You got to you got to take action. Welcome to How to Buy Giant Apartment Buildings, the number one show about growing your family's wealth with apartment building investments. Now, here's your host, Mark Allen Kenny. Hey, everybody. Welcome to How to Buy Giant Apartment Buildings. I'm Mark Allen Kenny. Our guest today is Michael Becker. How are you doing today, Michael? Hey, Mark. Doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Michael is a principal at SPI Advisory and heads up their office in Dallas. SPI specializes in repositioning multifamily assets. Under Michael's leadership over the past seven years, SPI has acquired approximately 10,000 units in the DFW and Austin markets. And Michael is also the host of the Multifamily Investing Show podcast. Michael, I'm super excited to chat with you today. Could you tell the listeners just a little bit more about your background and how you got started in real estate. Yeah, you know, my background, I, I started as a vendor. I was a banker in the business, loaning money to other people and kind of through that process realized I was on the, the wrong side of all those deals, Mark. Kind of better <laughs> be the, the borrower than the, the lender. So went out about, about a decade ago now, started buying some smaller single family properties, my own money, ended up doing 16 rent houses and kind of through that process realized that wasn't very scalable. So then I kind of reflected back to what I what I did all day, every day at work, which was loaning on on multifamily deals, and went out. And so about a little bit over ten thousand units later, we're uh, we're talking today. So we we currently sit with about six thousand units. I'm based in Dallas, as you mentioned. So we kind of focus really on two markets, which is Dallas Fort Worth, and then my business partner Sean's based in Austin. So we have two offices in Dallas and Austin. Those are the two markets that we focus on. About six thousand units, about a billion of uh, a real estate under management right now. So it's been a been a pretty good run, to be honest with you. Yeah, wow, that's awesome. I I would love to dive more into just the story of how you you got where you are today. I mean, that's a pretty big jump, and I started the same way, just buying smaller duplexes, four units, six units with, with myself and a partner of mine. How did you quickly scale to 10,000 units over seven years? I mean, that's an unbelievable story. I mean, can you speak to kind of, you know, how you were able to scale and then also what those first few larger deals looked like? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it really was I had a, a pretty good background from just loaning on on apartments. You know, I was the number one loan producer for my division at a Wells Fargo for you know three years in a row. And all I did was multifamily lending. So got a lot of repetition just looking at deal after deal after deal. And then I, I think with the benefit of hindsight, I didn't really need to start buying those smaller single family homes. It was helpful from the standpoint that got me comfortable with like running a project and you know buying something, renovating it, getting leased out, refinancing it, selling it. So I've had some, some experience kind of going full cycle on it, but just having a lot of transactional experience between both my, my banking days and you know, the single family stuff certainly helped, one. And then two, with my banking job, I had a lot of access to people that were the, the brokers and the business that sold a lot of these deals. So really what my 
first challenge really was kind of getting everyone's perception of Michael Becker in the marketplace being away from being a lender and to being a principal of these deals. And fortunately, it's relatively easy. You just got to buy a deal or two and then everyone kind of thinks of you as, as someone that can actually do it because that's it's a proof of concept type of business where if you don't, you know, if you don't actually have, have a successful track record, that, that first deal is really hard. But once you get that first one done, it gets exponentially easier to do your second, your third, or your 40-something or whatever we're doing right now. It gets much and much easier once you actually get one done. So just kind of going from zero to one is the, the hard part. Yeah. And what did that first deal look like for you as far as unit count and capital involved there? So we we bought a 120-unit deal. It was kind of mid-70s, flat roof, boiler system. In suburban Dallas, a city called Garland, I think it was about four million dollars. So it's kind of tell you times of, wow. times have changed a little bit. <laughs> I think we had to raise, uh, you know, some renovation funds in there too. I think we had to raise about one point two million dollars, and I had no idea how the hell we're going to raise one point two million dollars. But and then you know, fast forward to kind of tell you kind of the scale. A couple of weeks ago, we we just closed on a deal north of ninety million, four hundred fifty units. And we had 27 million in equity. So, you know, kind of going from where we were to where, where we are now, it's pretty amazing to kind of see the, the, the scale. But, you know, really what we, we found, I was fortunate where I met, you know, my now business partner. I, I did that while I was still working at the bank. I met my now business partner because I made a loan to, uh, to a guy out of California. I flew out, flew out to go meet him. And that's how I met my partner, Sean. He was working for a broker that sold high net worth individuals in California, uh, properties in Texas. So I made a loan with my clients and we did that. So he had a really large equity investor. So we got the bulk of the money from one guy and then, and then we brought a little bit of the money in. So it wasn't like a syndication. It's kind of more like a joint venture to get the first deal done. And then we kind of subsequently kind of evolved the business model into, into taking capital in, you know, $100,000 at a time through a syndication model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And has Sean been your partner the whole time then? The whole time. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. And can you speak to that a little bit and how you guys met and kind of how you gravitate towards different roles in, in the partnership? Yeah. Like I said, he he was working for one of a uh, broker out of California that helped people buy properties in Texas. And I made a loan to him. So that's kind of how we met just by both being vendors in the business. And we one day when I was out in California, we we're doing a deal and kind of we started talking and and uh, he had kind of evolved the business model where they helped, they got a local asset manager to put some money in these deals with their clients from California to kind of help help smooth the process out. And the guy they chose was actually another one of my clients at the bank and he, he kind of ran out of money. And I was like, well, I can do that. I, I got a little bit of money. I can do that. And that's kind of how we started doing our first few deals. And then, and then when we both kind of got sick of making you know the bank money or he got sick of making his boss money we decided to go out on our own and take it and really kind of scale it so we had a lot of good relationships you know one of the things that this is really helpful in the partnership that we have and we have very different but complementary skill sets so he's you know really really he's a genius when it comes to like analytical working a spreadsheet you know he's got a really good sense of negotiation so he kind of runs a lot of the transactional side of the business why I kind of focus a little bit more on asset management, investor relations, raising the capital. And then we kind of equally both have brokers relationships as well. So he's got some guys he's a little bit closer with and I have some guys that I'm a little closer with, but we don't really overlap too much in, in our roles and responsibilities. We have very clear lines on what he does and, and what I'm responsible for. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's talk about the asset management piece a little bit, because I think, you know, what you mentioned before about the, the hardest part is going from zero to one deals and the first deal, 120 units. That's a, that's a large project. I mean, a lot of people would say that's, that's a pretty big first deal. 
How did you gain the confidence to know that you could run that asset? Where did you learn about asset management? Did you have mentors or did you self-educate or what, what gave you the confidence to pull the trigger on that very first deal? So when I was at the bank, I, I would not only make the loans, but I was responsible for like servicing the loans as well, which was one of my most frustrating parts of, of the job is I had to mm. go, you know, stay on top of it. I had to approve loan draws when my clients would do construction, you know, what, what I specialize in, which is bridge financing. So you would buy a broken property coming out of the great recession, you know, something that was really messed up that needed you know, capital to improve it, kind of the early value add of a decade or better ago, I guess, at this point. And so I just got to observe all my clients, you know, the good ones, the bad ones, who did who was successful, who was less successful. And I just really kind of took note of that and emulated the traits of the people that I thought were successful and uh, try to avoid some of the mistakes the people I thought were less successful. Couple that with I was hiring a professional third party management company to come in and they take a lot of the day to day kind of heavy lifting. So, you know, through my just my observation at work and then getting to see what all the people in town that borrowed money from me, what vendors did they use, what prices were they paying, you know, I had access to all that just by having to approve their, their construction loan draws when they're renovating these properties. I had kind of a shortcut, I guess, to figure out who to call, who to work with, uh, and kind of a lot of people I could actually call and, and rely upon, but I didn't go through some formal mentoring program, which I think is a pretty good way to shortcut it. So if you don't have a professional background like I did, and you're a doctor or a sales salesperson or something, and you want to get into this business, I think that's a pretty good way of shortcutting. If you hire a good reputable mentor that's got an ecosystem where you can help raise capital out of that, that group and the network and then get vendors and people to partner with. I think that's a good way to, to shortcut a, a pretty big learning curve. And especially when you're talking about, you know, millions and multi-million dollar deals, you know, one little mistake can cost a lot of money. So I, I'm a big proponent of, of someone, you know, uh, participating in, the, in a mentoring program. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's awesome. So from that very first deal, has your strategy changed much as far as the types of assets that you guys are looking for and the, you know, the, the level of value add and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think a little bit. I mean, we've we've certainly have scaled up, so we're we're not buying uh, smaller, you know, anymore. Everything's all relative, so we're not buying hundred unit deals anymore. We're trying to buy, you know, two hundred fifty kind of plus unit properties, and mm -hmm. where we kind of have traded out of the, the true workforce housing, the the sixties and seventies vintage product in, in Texas is kind of your real true workforce housing, and you know we started doing that, and then we went into the B class, which is late nineteen eighties. And a year of construction and then now really what we focus on are properties that are generally 20 years or younger so kind of a to a minus you know last two deals we bought one was built in 1998 and then one was built in 2018 so it was kind of the last two properties that, that we acquired and really a function of it's kind of twofold why, why we do that one is you know we've been fortunate to go full cycle on i think we sold 20 20 some odd buildings i think at this point and then we refinanced out another 10 or 12 so we've gone full cycle on you know numerous number of deals and returned a lot of capital. So that allows our ability to attract capital is much greater than what it was when we started. So it's hard for us to buy twenty million dollar deal because the, the the demand is is more than that right now in our in our investor pool. But really, more than that is is the market moved on us as well. We bought our first property, Mark. I mean, in Dallas, eight ten years ago, you could buy a brand new Class A deal in Dallas Fort Worth for about a five cap. A B deal was about a six and a half cap and a C deal was somewhere between eight and eight and a half cap. Well, fast forward to today, you know, an A deal is like four and a half, a B deal is like 475 and a C deal is like five. 
And if you have a value add component, those cap rates are even lower than what I just kind of quoted you. So, you know, I mean, what used to be 300 basis points or more in spread between the top of the grade and the bottom of the grade, now we're just basically all on top of each other. So it doesn't make sense to me to pay the same or similar cap rate for something built in 1974 that I can for something built in 2004 or 2014 for that matter. And then these deals, when I first started buying, I mean, most of the deals in Dallas-Fort Worth were kind of virgin Virgin properties are all classic and they weren't really renovated. And now, you know, eight, 10 years later, you're on your third or fourth generation value add. I mean, people have value added the value add and then they value add again. (laughs) So, uh, you know, these properties were in the 20s and 30,000 units when we first started buying them. The same properties now are knocking on the door of 100,000 units. So it's just kind of, you know, the market's different, but at the same time, our rents have more than doubled in that, that same time period as well. So the fundamentals are there and the debt's much more attractive today. So there's a numerous factors that kind of go into the market dynamics, but between the amount of money we can raise and, and you know, just kind of the economic shifting, uh, you know, in my opinion, it, it makes more sense to buy something a little newer and nicer if I had to pay the same or similar cap rate as something kind of older and, and lesser located. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You guys have been very disciplined with with sticking to your markets. I mean, you're at t- over ten thousand units in your markets. Can you speak to that a little bit and why why that's part of your strategy? I think you know there are many other operators out there who are you know pretty scattered or at least have added you know additional markets and states as they push to ten thousand units. What's your thoughts there? Yeah, you know, I'm fortunate where we we focus on two pretty large markets. I mean, so Dallas Fort Worth is one of the most populated regions in the entire country. They're the fourth largest metropolitan area and the entire country and soon to take over Chicago for number three, probably the next decade or decade and a half. And so we have about 800,000 market rate apartment units in Dallas-Fort Worth. Austin's the second market we focus on is about 200,000 market rate apartment units. So there's about a million potential units I can go out and, and buy. So I'm in a area with a lot of opportunity. And then Dallas in particular, Austin's a little bit tighter but in Dallas, I, I joke, but it seems like every deal in Dallas trades every two to three years. So it's like these deals are always selling. So there's just a lot of velocity. So you got a lot of units and a lot of transactional velocity. So that means there's a lot of opportunity to buy, um, a little less in, in Austin. So we just got a lot of opportunity to buy to buy deals. So that that one helps. If you were in a different market that's a little bit smaller, a little bit tighter, you wouldn't have as much opportunity to buy. So that that's one thing. You know, the other thing is very intentional. We wanted we just got to Austin about two years ago. My partner has been, you know, grew up there and has been living. He, he came back from California, you know, several years ago. So he was there for several years before we started expanding there. We just wanted to make sure we had our base really tight. And then we want to make sure we have a good base and really tight base down in Austin as well. You know, we're approaching 2000 units in, in Austin right now. And hopefully by the end of 2021, we'll, we'll get there. And then from there, we'll probably go to San Antonio. That, that probably makes the most sense, which is, you know, downtown Austin, downtown San Antonio is about 90 90 minutes from each other, an hour and a half. So they're, you know, it's kind of an extension of the same market. And from there, we're, I think we decided to stay out of Houston because it's too volatile. So then from that point, we'll probably go out of state. But there's still probably another year or two down the road before we get out of state. You know, it just makes sense for us because, you know, these are good markets. The demographics are really strong. Lots of population and job growth. And, and you know, it's been a really, you know, good environment, business landlord friendly. So it's really hard to kind of replicate the, the market dynamics in these other parts of the country. I know people, I went to Phoenix a few years ago, looked at it. I probably should have bought everything I, I saw. In Phoenix. <laughs> Phoenix has been on fire. I've been to Nashville. Um, you know, a lot of people like Carolina. So I think those are all great, phenomenal markets. But we're a relatively small firm. I mean, there's 10 of us in our company. We third party manage. 
we're just trying to make sure what we do, we do well. And, and, uh, you know, there's enough opportunity kind of currently where we're at that, that keeps us busy enough for where we want to be from a, a capacity standpoint. Yeah. Great. That's awesome. Is there a typical kind of, um, you know, metrics that you guys are looking for as you analyze deals? What's the, the, the returns for investors that you like to see as far as IRR and cash on cash? Yeah, today, most of these deals kind of are, are in between a 13 to 15 from an internal rate of return standpoint. And, you know, so and then on a cash on cash, you know, over, we typically underwrite to a five-year hold. So if I can hit, you know, between a 13 and 15 IRR, if I can get, you know, 8% average cash on cash over the five-year period, and you have a 1.7, multiple or higher, equity multiple or higher, that gets you all the money in the world right now. So the money just comes flowing in. If you're at a 12 IRR and a, and a six and a half average cash on cash, it gets a little tougher to attract the capital for the, for the deals that we do. But, you know, if you would have talked to me seven, eight years ago, we were 25 IRRs and, you know, whatever, double digit cash on cash, pretty much out of the gate. And the market's just kind of, kind of shifted and, and everyone's, the world's awash with capital right now, it seems like. So everyone's trying to find yield and I, so all the returns are getting compressed as we get deeper and deeper in the cycle. Yeah, that makes sense. And then you mentioned earlier that you guys have had several exits and, and you, in some cases, prefer to refi investors out. What happens at that point during a refire? Are investors still in your deal or what, what, what happens after the... Yeah, we, everyone keeps their, their ownership interest. Yeah. Uh, there's no dilution or bought out upon a refi. Everything everything kind of stays the same. You know, we, we keep it real simple. I mean, we, we, just, we typically just... Our deal is a 80-20 split with no preferred return. That's our typical deal. And I can't, I wish I had more thought to, to why we're here. It's kind of what we did and it's always kind of worked and so we just kind of never really been broken. So it seems like a pretty fair deal. Uh, there's no right or wrong to that. A lot of, a lot of people, probably the majority of people that do what I do probably pay a preferred return with the waterfall above it. But in my experience, the simpler you make it, the, the better it is because you have to explain a uh, why I prefer return with a graduated waterfall based on IRR hurdles to someone that doesn't really understand it. They're, they kind of get, get their eyes glaze over and a confused mind doesn't buy. So we try to keep it real simple, real fair and straight down the, straight down the fairway. That's kind of been our, our thought, thoughts around that topic at least. Yeah, I love that. I'm the same way. I like it simple. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your new podcast, a multifamily investing show and congrats on the launch. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, your attention behind the show and, and kind of what the content will be like? Yeah, I appreciate that. So I've been, you know, the co-host of the old Capital Real Estate Investing Podcast for, you know, many years at this point and still going to do that a little bit. But uh, what I've kind of uh, realized, it really wasn't a very highly produced show in uh, in the marketplace. A lot of people are going to just have audio only podcasts like the old Capital Podcast, your podcast is, which is which is great. But, uh, you know, we decided to take it and, and really get a studio. So there's a local studio near my office. And we get to go in there. It's kind of like kind of like a set of Oprah in there a little bit. So then we'll have, <laughs> awesome. uh, you know, I, I'm in a, I'm in a market where there's a lot of really, you know, it's kind of I, I I describe Dallas almost the center of the multifamily universe. Lots of large brokerage companies are headquartered here. Management companies, developers, big uh, big apartment owners and operators are, are all based here. So I've been trying to do a lot of this in person and kind of interview and really try to go upstream a little bit with kind of the the type of people and try to attract some people that, you know, have multiple billion dollars of either sales a year, financing, asset center management, and, and, you know, really try to try to take it to the next level as far as kind of the people that are looking to aspire and scale. Cause that's kind of who, where I'm looking to my future. You know, it's great to talk to the person that bought their first or second deal, which, which is awesome, which, you know, we've done a bunch on our podcast. I'm sure you do on yours, 
but it's another thing for those of us that have bought a bunch of deals. Well, how do I get to the next level and the next level? And that's really what I'm trying to trying to accomplish with uh, with our with our new show. It's that time of the show for a segment called Best Deal, Worst Deal, where we talk about real estate transactions that you've done in the past so that others can learn from your knowledge and expertise. So, Michael, with that said, what's the best real estate deal that you've done? Uh, the one that kind of pops to mind was probably the fifth deal we bought, fifth or sixth deal we, we purchased. It was a uh, 218-unit property in Grapevine, Texas, which is like suburban uh, suburban Fort Worth. And when we bought it, it was called Regional Place Apartments. It was a terrible name and uh, <laughs> needed a had terrible management, terrible condition. And over about a four-year period, we were uh, more than able to more than double our net operating income. And I think we hit a four and a half multiple. So, you know, $1 turned into four and a half dollars over about a four-year period. So that was a pretty good deal. The first year was a little, little scary, a little rocky as we were trying to, you know, reposition the deal but it worked out to be a, a great result in a, in a pretty short period of time. Yeah, that's awesome. What advice would you give to someone who's looking at a similar deal that's in rough shape, poor management? What advice would you give that person? I mean, I think really what what stuck out to me on that deal was when I walked on the deal, you see it, you kind of see it on paper. And then when you actually physically walked on it, it was like so obvious all the areas for improvement that we can do from both the physical, from a management that it was like, we saw the opportunity. This was an off-market deal. We immediately jumped on it, put an LOI in, a rush to get an escrow before someone else figured out what I what I had figured out. I didn't want the world to know about it. So uh, <laughs> when I think really what, what what the biggest thing that kind of separates a lot of people that are successful and do more deals versus the people that are less successful and do less deals are the ability to spot and act upon opportunity. So when there's opportunity in front of you, you need to seize it. You know, you need to do what you need to do. You need to get the information. You need to be you know diligent in the way you underwrite it. But at the same time, you can't overthink it and uh, and delay. You got to you got to take action when you see opportunity. So that's probably the biggest takeaway I, I'd want to leave people with. Awesome, I love that. What would you say is the worst real estate deal that you've done? You know, I think fortunately we've never lost any money on any deal, so that's uh, that's uh, it's good so far. But the market's been obviously un- unbelievable for the last decade, so I think most people that do this could probably say the same thing. But one of the deals we actually just sold it. We we did pretty decent on a financial term metrics, but we bought a property and then bought a second property adjacent to it and turned it in and kind of combined these sites and then turned it into a two phase deal. And it would just been it was a dumpster fire of a deal the entire time we owned it and operated it. From the day we bought it, we ended up putting long-term fixed rate debt on something that we were going to try to reposition and sell. And then that loan became what we thought was going to be a asset to us, became anchor around our neck because we had you know, a loan and kind of mid four interest rate and the interest rates over the last several years have just done nothing but go down. So our prepayment penalty at, at kind of by extension goes up. So that really prohibited you know, getting, getting the value out of the deal that we should have. And then it was... We came in the deal a little bit undercapitalized as well. And so we never had the right amount of money to do what we needed to do. And then so we always were kind of been chasing our tails. And then we had a bad regional manager, my extension manager on the property. So we had to kind of put some people in the place that shouldn't have been in the place. And so we had to retented it once or twice. And so just every time we turned around, I felt like we we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. But the good thing is we we ended up making you know pretty good return on it in a day, and I think one of the positive takeaways from that is is you know one don't come in these deals undercapitalized, you know try to match your your debt with your business plan a little bit better than what what we ended up doing, and then you know two I think as long as you're as long as you can hold on long enough and you're in a market that's a growing market, 
uh, real estate's pretty forgiving. You know, as long as you have enough time, a lot of these problems tend to kind of work themselves out over time. That's what we did. We just kind of didn't give up. We stuck with it. We persevered, and and the end of the end of the deal was was a pretty good financially. But uh, it's one of those deals that that was great. Let's never do it again. Uh, type, <laughs> type of type of deal, you know. Yeah. What was the number one thing that you learned from that? As far as like when when you're going to new projects and underwriting new deals, what's the number one takeaway from from that? Yeah, coming extremely well capitalized. I mean, that, that is certainly certainly the a lesson I've learned. You know, on this deal, and I made that mistake one or two other times. When every time it's like, should I take that extra hundred thousand or two hundred thousand in the deal? It kind of dilutes the returns a little bit. You know, the answer is always yes. Take that extra money in. If you don't need it, you can always you can always give it back down the road. But if you need it. It's, uh, it's easy to ask for money one time. It's hard to ask for it two or three times from your investors. So, you know, get in, get in a deal, get the right amount of capital, make sure you have contingencies in place. It always makes the deal go a little bit, a little bit smoother. So that, that was a pretty good takeaway from, from that transaction and a couple others I've, I've done in the past as well. So, Michael, we're a little bit short on time here, but where can an investor kind of connect with you and learn more about what you're up to? Yeah, I think I've done a lot of a lot of podcasts uh, over the years. So you search me on iTunes or Stitchers, type of Michael Becker, you'll find me on the Old Capital Real Estate Investing Show, or my new show is uh, the Multifamily Investing Show with Michael Becker. Our website's multifamilyinvestingshow.com. Go there. It's on on our website as well as YouTube and uh, or my company's SPI Advisory. Go to spiadvisory.com. I guess I'm giving out too many contacts here, but uh, <laughs> no, it's great. I, I'm, I'm everywhere. I'm all over the board, so you can. Uh, <laughs> pretty easy to find and, and find out a bunch of information about us. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you for taking the time today. I really appreciate it and have a great rest of your day. Uh, thanks, Mark. Hey, everybody. It's Mark Allen Kenny. If you're interested in apartment building investments, schedule a call with me so we can have a chance to chat. My company is focused on growing your family's wealth with apartment building investments. So let's hop on a quick call and talk about your investment goals and see if we're a good fit. Find out more at StellarInvestmentGroup.com.